everybody. Uh, we're back for another episode of Cartel Aristocrats. Uh, as always, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Gathering Magic and CoolStuffInc.com, whoever pr provided us with gift certifi certificates to give away. With free shipping on orders of $100 or more and a $25 buy list bonus and their ever-popular customer rewards program, CoolStuffInc is the store for all your Gathering Magic Magic the Gathering needs. Man, I am not good at this opener. You uh, also tweeted the link with going live soon, even though we're live when you tweeted it, and you didn't include the link to where we're live. It's true, because I don't remember the password to the Twitter account, so I can't do it from my computer, which is where I have the link to the YouTube thing. Um, but technically, there's a delay between when we start recording and when it actually goes live, so going live soon is technically true, because you can't see it live probably for like, I don't know, 30 seconds after when I tweeted that. All right, keep keep that. Our listeners can keep that in mind. Make use of that at some point in the future. Well, uh, usually I don't do this. Jeremy has a date today. Apparently, I'm not sure if I believe that or not. But he said he said he has like some personal things. Uh, he says it's a date, but I, I don't know. I don't know if I believe him. It just means it's a woman who's selling him magic cards. That could be true. That could be true. Um, but we're back this week. Uh, Ed has our lovely docket ready to go of all of the things that we're going to talk about this week. Right, Ed? Uh, yes. Yes? So so what's on the docket this week, Ed? Are we going to talk about Dominaria? Uh, we could. I guess if anyone who has been living under a rock... There was a uh, a massive spoiler that came from, I believe, a Chinese website that had the full. Um, help me out here. What am I thinking of? The release like notes. The, the release, release notes. notes. Yeah, for, yes, with the rules and stuff. That yeah, where they were basically explaining themes, mechanics, um, and it, there was also a very large number of spoilers that came in. Um, I think Mythic Spoiler puts in like 140 or something. That was roughly uh, the amount that they had. A lot of it, uh, it was a little slow to get going because there were translation issues. The full page was in Chinese. But I believe it was today where Wizards straight up, uh, no, today or Friday, where they basically came out and they just had the correct translation for all the spoiled cards. You can see a lot of themes. So they spoiled the first uh, Saga card, which is basically a mix between um enchantment that just is that's doing something perpetually every turn for several turns uh so very similar to the level up creatures from eldrazi except it happens when you play it and at the beginning of your upkeep or your draw step i can't quite remember i looked at it briefly when i was on the plane um, it's it's really weird it, it you put a new lore counter on after your draw step so before you're like as you're entering your first main phase so, uh, there were a few other things to spoil as well. There's a very heavy uh, emphasis on legends. Um, the was it Mox Amber? That one is the one that's kind of getting the most buzz. It's the fixed Mox variation that we see time and time again. That seems to be kind of like the forerunner for the most expensive card in the set. Uh, they also said a few things like there's going to be a change to the legendary creature frame, and there's also going to be a change to uh how damage is dealt to planeswalkers and as a result a lot of red cards have gone and errata because of that so there's a lot to dissect there if you really want the full details you can go and read it but i think uh obviously what discussion here among us like what can we talk about in terms of like financial implications because i think a lot of people have kind of hashed out like the basic ones but obviously there's a lot more to go well you know i always when you see a spoiler like that try and look for synergies that uh pop up in other formats since those when you see those cards pop up that's where you can get it really excited and i kind of use dark depths and vampire hex mage as my uh my framework for that so when zendikar was spoiled um vampire hex mage popped up in the spoiler everyone's like okay cool and nothing happened to dark depths right away and i even remember thinking about it and then not buying any dark depths because at the time i didn't know what i was doing uh and now that I know better, uh, those are the types of things that I keep an eye out for. Like, does this card turn on anything crazy elsewhere? Which is what happened when Amber Mox came out, right? Everyone's like, oh my god, what one mana legendary creatures can we find to make Amber Mox insane? So that's where everyone should be looking. 
I know a couple of them have been found already. So like Leyline of uh, Singularity got better, or at least I should say uh, got bought out. I can't say they got better. Um, I haven't found anything so far that nobody else has caught. Every card I've looked up was already bought out, but I'm sure they'll kind of come. We'll get some more good ones as we go. Uh, did you guys find anything novel? Uh, I think that there's going to be definitely like a lot of cards that are going to fly under people's radar and it's going to be like a casual staple for years to come. Um, Oath of Teferi strikes me as the kind of card that like is going to be bulk or near bulk in standard, like sub $1. And then we're going to look at this in like three or four years and it's going to be like a three or $4 card because it's just going to go in every Planeswalker deck that ever exists. It's probably one of the best, if not the best Oath that exists. And um, it also is the right colors to fit in a Traxa, which is important. Um, I don't know. It just has a lot of car- a lot going for it. Like I play primarily with EDH players now, and I sent them the spoiler for that, and they told me that I was lying. They just didn't believe that that was a real card. So, which card is that? Can you remind us? Sure. It's the uh, Oath of Teferi. is a, a five minute enchantment. It costs three blue white. Uh, when it enters the battlefield, you exile per- another permanent you control and then return it to the battlefield. So it's great with other oaths that have come into play effects or other permanents that you have. Um, and then its static ability is you may activate the loyalty, loyalty ability of planeswalkers you control twice each turn rather than once. Oh, that's what it is. It's a double one, yep. Yeah, it's just basically the same as the Teferi Ultimate from the Commander deck. And, or no, it's not the same as that. Sorry, that one says you can activate them on other people's turns. It's kind of like a chain veil, but it doesn't cost like a million mana to use it. And that's pretty sick that it just does it for you for free. And when you compare it to chain veil, which is like, a, what was like a $15 foil or something nonsense or $20 foil now, and the non foils are like six or seven bucks, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm there's, there, yeah, it, I think that's about right. So, and, and, you know, this one is a little bit less busted because you can't like, untap it and go infinite with it. It's not like you can use Tezzeret to untap the Chain Veil and like our factor makes a bunch of mana and just keep going and keep doing that. So it's a little bit more fair, but it's definitely more powerful and it costs you a lot less mana in the long run to do it. So I think it's probably going to be a staple in pretty much every deck that can play it. Anything that cares about Planeswalkers. Yeah, that's a fair, uh, a fair way to think about it. But there's also a lot of legendary creatures that just like can spawn weird new decks. Um, the Sultai colored six mana six six guy that lets you play a permanent out of your graveyard or one of each permanent type out of your graveyard every turn, I feel like can maybe stir up some interest in Delirium cards again because it's rewarding you for playing multiple permanent types already, and Delirium rewards you for having different permanent ty- or different card types in your graveyard anyway. Um, so there's a lot of, there's definitely a lot of cards in this set that like are not going to see any standard play, don't look very good, but are going to be probably pretty expensive in a couple of years. This is also a spring set, so there's just not going to be a ton of it open. It's not like we're going into September and it's the fall set and just everyone's coming back into magic and opening a ton of packs. Like this is the, usually where the middle set is or the last set, sorry, the last set in a block right before the core set. So I don't think a lot of people are going to end up opening this, even if there's a lot of hype for all the stuff that's in it. If without reprints, you definitely have a lot of room for a lot of casual staples to grow. Tons of legendary creatures, a lot more to come because that's clearly one of the themes, which opens up a lot of commander possibilities. So there's definitely some cool stuff in here. Uh, I'm curious to see what else is in the set. It does look like the most interesting standard set we've seen in a while. I, you know, I don't know the last time I played a standard F and M, but I will tell you, nothing has gotten me thinking about it as much as the Dominaria leaks have. It does look pretty cool. I mean, this is also, I think setting us up pretty nicely to go to Ravnica, uh, out of the 144 cards that are spoiled so far, 17 of them are gold. And all of those are common, uncommon or rare. That's hmm. a pretty big number. Since most of them are actually not even uncommon, most of them are rares or mythics. That's a lot of gold cards in the set. Yeah, that is. Which, you know, when there's a lot of gold cards, it means there's a lot of different variations in standard. You can play more different colors, and there are more options. There's more payoffs for playing specific colors. You can play any color pair you want as long as it's not uh, Simic. 
Yeah, I don't know why they just can't print good blue-green cards. It just doesn't make any sense to me. I think the problem is that Simic is inherently like a re- just mana and card drawing, which means it's really difficult to do it fairly. Because if you make them too good, it just becomes the best thing possible. Because what else do you want to do in Magic other than make mana and draw cards? Yeah, I mean, I guess like the only like competitive Simic deck that exists is in fact. And really, it's a blue and it's a blue or green deck, not so much a blue and green deck. Like it doesn't play any gold cards. It's just the blue and the green creatures that have impact happen to be the best ones that you can play. Yeah, it's a bummer how bad Simic is because, like, I've been playing Magic for a long time. The number of times Simic was a com- tournament competitive strategy for more than a weekend is, uh, I mean, I can't even really think of one. I guess Turbo Land and Zendikar is the last time I could think that a Simic deck was like consistently good right so there's a lot of stuff to digest in this um you know there's also a lot of other like weird things like lana Ralves is in this set so like you could pros- possibly see like a run on like alpha or beta ones because the blackboard or old old art ones are like preferable to a lot of people they're already highly regarded by a lot of people that are playing old school if a bunch of people are coming back to the game and want to play, you know, because they want to play with Lana Elves, like, that's definitely a thing that can happen, since uh, a lot of the other arts are pretty ugly. Um, there's foils of them, too. Like, I think there was an FNM promo, or, or rewards promo, or something. There was an FNM promo of the original Lana War Elf art, and good luck finding it. I looked the other day, and I moderately played copies were $50. So. Oh, well, there's one of my EDH checks, so maybe it's time to sell it. Yeah, I mean, well, you're not getting it back. Like, it's not like they're going to reprint that one. Yeah, I know. But, like, as in my old age, I've started to care less and less about the art and more just, like, owning the cheapest copy of it so I don't get blown out. Hmm. Uh, the trick is to just ignore the value of your EDH binder entirely. You can't get blown out if it doesn't have any value in your brain. It's true. In your brain hole. No, no, I, I agree, but like I I think eventually I'm gonna sell a lot of stuff and just downgrade to the cheapest versions because I'd rather have that money for other things. Yeah, I mean I guess probably comes for everybody at some point. <laughs> Put it off as long as possible. What about you, Ed? You're quiet. Uh, I think you guys have kind of hit on the head. Like I haven't really been looking at the spoilers. I know there have been a lot of them. Like the first one that I kind of looked at was this uh, the saga cards that I saw earlier. Uh, beyond that, I think uh, one thing that Reddit kind of dug up, I guess, is the potential that there's no masterpieces in Dominaria. Um, I believe the rationale behind this was that inside the release notes for um, Amicat, Kaldash, and Battle for Zenicar blocks, all three of those blocks, they there is a mention specifically to masterpieces, uh, legality, etc., and that's completely lacking in the release notes for Dominaria, which is what is leading people to think that there are no masterpieces in this. Um, certainly some interesting implications there. Um, beyond that, I think you guys kind of hit it on the head uh, with legendary, th- uh, legendary type sets. Um, even if you go back, the last time we really had a legendary set was like Champions block. If you kind of go back and look at that block, there's a lot of really, really obscure cards. Granted, it was from, you know, we're looking at a set that's 12, no, longer than that, 15 years old at this point. Like, well before most people started playing. But if you, like, really go through and you look at, like, the uh, the prices, the buy lists... There's a lot of really obscure legends, cards that interact with legends, etc., that exist uh, slowly, uh, solely for a purpose of EDH. And I believe that Dominaria is kind of heading that direction. I think mm-hmm. a lot of these cards, a lot of the legends, are probably above just being a straight bulk rare at some point. Um, you know, legend like legends are always the type of things that you know people want to play with. Most legends do kind of already fall in a rare that's slightly above bulk rare status, mainly because someone somewhere out there probably has a commander deck with uh, with that particular uh, legend. Um, so that's one of the things to kind of keep an eye out on. Obviously, some of the ones are more hyped up, just sell it right away at release. 
But if you get like a random pre-release foil of some legend, it it might be worth holding on to for a little bit just to kind of see if it pans out. Um, mainly because the legends that kind of pick up in popularity in EDH generally don't happen right away. Mainly because most people just don't see a legend get spoiled. Oh, I'm going to build a new EDH deck right away. It kind of is a little bit of experimenting slowly building a deck over time and people realizing that oh this deck is like this deck is pretty good how can i continue to build on this deck or what other uh commanders exist that are in that color pair or whatever that kind of work well with it and we kind of see an up just have kind of a straight upward trend of the popularity of that particular uh commander okay so i think that probably like wraps up like uh dominator discussion i think we kind of hit everything on the head obviously we'll have more spoilers i think they continue next week i think that was what they said yeah i i would li- really hope to see something cool in this set right that we haven't you know maybe it's not masterpieces specifically but something like resembling that uh but yeah you, i've heard the same thing that you know if they're not here then they're not in the game or yeah. not in the set yeah, I, I, I feel like that pretty much sums that up. I, I guess I will note one last thing. Um, there are some important tribes in this set that we've seen so far, and there is like probably going to be a little bit of support for pre-existing tribes from Ixalan block. Um, there's a dinosaur in this set. There are a bunch of reprints of uh, goblin cards that were pretty good back in the day, and... I would imagine that there's going to be more of that. Like there'll probably be some more vampire cards and possibly even pirates or merfolk. Um, so if you have any interest in playing those in standard, for example, uh, I would be paying very good close attention to the spoilers that come up. Um, there might be, you know, something to push your deck over the top, and you want to be able to purchase the, the cards that are already existing uh, ahead of time, so you don't have to worry about buying into a spike. Okay, our next topic. So let's go. What's the next topic, Ed? Uh, there were some pretty good questions on Gathering Magic that uh, I've been a little slow about answering. Uh, so one of them, uh, not not our winner, uh, but this is just a very good question, General, that we can definitely touch on. Uh, our winner will probably be answered next or. Uh, after that, and just answer a few of these questions. Uh, question, you mentioned seasonality on the last cast. Clearly, quarter one is the time to cash out. Uh, when are the best times to buy in? Uh, this has kind of been a recurring theme. Um, we've talked about this in the past. Uh, generally, market trends suggest that people tend to be selling out at the beginning of summer. So usually May, May, June, those are kind of months that people are selling out. And... Uh, towards the holiday season in October, November, December. Um, there's a bit more nuance with it than that. Uh, it's it's important to understand that people generally cash out for things like, you know, summer people want to go on vacation, people want to be outside. Magic is not the most popular during summer. Uh, online sales for me generally tend to reflect that. People are just less keen about buying magic cards versus, you know, hey, weekend trip to the beach or, you know, let's make that, you know, week-long Europe trip happened or whatever. Um, and obviously during the holidays, people generally tend to be more focused on buying gifts, uh, traveling, etc. So that's... In my, sorry, go ahead. It. No, no, sorry. Uh, I was going to say, like, my... My very rough research has concluded that the best day to buy cars usually at their cheapest is Christmas Eve. Um, that is the time when the most people have sold their cards and they will be at its lowest, lowest price. And it's the day before a lot of people get a large influx of cash from um, Christmas day. A lot of people get money for the holidays and then they go and spend it pretty much immediately. So if you're waiting for the lowest time and you don't really have a target date that when you want to get it, um, the season, the, the day literally that it's usually at the lowest is the day before Christmas or the day of Christmas is also pretty low. But after that is when it starts to go up. Okay. I have nothing to add to this. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a pretty simple question, but I think it's one that's worth visiting, mainly because it does come up time and time again. That's one of those things where if you can kind of build your bankroll and just kind of be aware of, hey, there might be large collections coming in, you can generally get the most bang for your buck around those times. So, uh, second question uh, that is a bit more interesting. Um, hey, Cast, I was hoping to hear your opinion about the future of local game stores in the coming, say, five years. What do they need to survive? Uh, pretty interesting question. Um, we've seen kind of a lot of game stores come and go. Like, I've been doing this long enough that... Uh, a lot of the oldest stores have kind of fallen by the wayside. Um, a lot of them are kind of that were built on legacy either are so big and their owners are so rich that they don't care. Um, or some of them have just straight up closed up shop and moved on. Uh, kind of the best example would be Strike Zone. They used to be one of the, uh, they're better based out of Texas. They used to be one of the biggest ones on the Grand Prix circuit. They were doing them uh, for a very, very long time, and they were very, very successful. And um, since I started doing this a lot, with each passing year, it just felt like they've done less and less. Uh, it doesn't feel like they've had the same impact, um, mainly because there's so many... There's a lot more competition now. Texas has quite a few very, very large and successful stores. And, uh, and it, it the nature of... Grand Prix being coming more and more competitive has just made it very, very hard for them to keep up. Um, I think, for what I know, they'll be at like one or two Grand Prix this year. That was like roughly the same number that they were at last year. And that was pretty much locked into uh, ones that were roughly in Texas or in a surrounding area. They weren't really looking to travel uh, pretty far for events. Man. I have never had as unpleasant an experience with a store as I did with Strike Zone Online. I don't know if it was the owner or just the guy who runs the place, but that guy was the biggest asshole I have ever dealt with in Magic. And that might be part of the problem. Um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely sure. I'm sure there's like more than that, but uh, Strike Zone, like, if you played Magic like during the early like 2000s, Strike Zone was definitely kind of a household name, the same way you would think like Channel Fireball is a household name for Magic now. So, yeah, I think that um, basically local game stores at this point have to be diverse in what they're offering. They have to appeal to more than just Magic players because, generally speaking, those are the kinds of people that are going to keep your your lights on and your doors open. Um, some people sell board games, some people sell other card games, some people just have really good tournaments. Um, it's it's hard. Like I wouldn't want to try to open a store at this point. I don't think that there's really a market for it in a lot of places. I think that as it is, a lot of places are already way oversaturated. I know Orlando has like five, I think, stores, and that's already way too many. A lot of stores only get like 10 to 12 people for FNM, which you know doesn't really probably pay for more than one employee for that night. Uh, I can't imagine that there's a lot of stores that can survive on just that income alone without having any other business. Um, like it's it, it's 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 going to be hard, especially if Arena is as successful as Wizards of the Coast wants it to be. You know, a lot of those people that would have gone to the eight to twelve person. Um, FNMs might just stay home and play Arena on their computer instead. Um, you know, I feel like I am underqualified to talk about what card stores need to do to be successful in the next five years because I don't own a store and I've never run a store and I've only ever shopped in stores and even that's a stretch. But it seems like some of the stores that do very well tend to offer, I don't want to say diverse experiences, but they're kind of a full service package. And I would guess that like the Mox boarding house out in Seattle is probably a really good example of this where you have like a full LGS, but they've also got like a restaurant and beverage store kind of like attached to it. And there's like a bar and everything. So I remember playing a lot of magic back in the day. And like, we would always have to leave to go get lunch or we would talk about where we were going to go get dinner afterwards and that type of thing. And if there had been like a decent bar food place attached to the LGS that sold alcohol, we would have been there all the time. 
so I would get and, and having the food and beverage quality high enough that you can get uh, normal people in the doors to consume it, who then might also see what's going on seems like it's your best way to sort of straddle two worlds and kind of use the traffic from one to boost the other. But that's also a huge undertaking, right? Like, you know, the capital necessary to open an LGS is probably like folding table, folding chair, three glass case, rent some guy's garage is like, what, 75 grand. Uh, and that's probably enough to buy your inventory where this type of thing, you're looking at probably half a million dollars. So it's another, it's a different scale of, uh, of endeavor. Yeah, I, I think that kind of like hits on the head. Like, even though, like, you know, you kind of, you have uh, start off with, you're not the best qualified to, you know, identify like what qualifiable measures would be necessary towards the game store success. You can, you like, you know, you can identify that, you know, hey, like food is important. And I think like Mox Boarding House, like you kind of mentioned that. Um, our longtime listeners, I think about probably like a year ago or something at this point, we had uh, Mike Hawthorne on from. Mm-hmm lodestone games out in minneapolis i had a chance to visit their store before grand prix minneapolis last year uh doug and i we we got our flights were gotten super early we had a chance to go check them out it was a very very cool store um they kind of deviated from the very traditional game store model um because they had uh it was was a coffee shop so they were actually open they actually had an employee there at i believe it was seven or eight in the morning we showed up like 8 30 or 9 obviously there wasn't a lot of traffic but the fact that it was open and it was available for people who wanted to come in and just get you know a like breakfast pastry plus a cup of coffee the fact that that option was there probably generates some enough uh enough revenue that it's worth being open to have an employee at that time and if they do make incidental sales or you know you do get the random walk-in traffic that it's perfectly fine to be open at that point um it's not the easiest thing. Obviously, you have things like it's one thing to be serving like coffee and just uh, having you know pastries available from you know wherever bakery is nearby that you work out something with them and you sell their pastries. It's another thing to kind of have a full restaurant or bo- or uh, a bar. Obviously, with a bar, you need like a liquor license. Uh, uh, out in Portland, where I used to live, there's a store called Guardian Games. They actually had a completely separate room, and there was an employee who's Basically, his job was to check everyone's ID um, if they wanted to go into that room and play or whatever. And they had uh, they had taps inside; you could get beers or whatever. Um, that was kind of cool, but I can only imagine that in some jurisdictions, it's pretty hard to kind of get that off the ground. But uh, I think most critically, I think what both Travis and uh, Jim mentioned is going forward, you need to be relatively diverse. Um, back when most game stores some of these legacy vendors or whatever when they were the only game store in their area when they had relatively low competition they could afford to be relatively narrow-minded and just focused on a very um like a, a very a very small market that's appealing to a relatively small set of people because there isn't competition now you have to start looking like okay how can we get customers in the door in any way we can and how do we retain those customers? How do we keep them coming back? And whether that be, you know, like food, get, you know, just normal out of the mill people who know nothing about nerd culture, magic, board games, anything that they can still come in and, you know, enjoy your food. Or um, you have to have board games, you have to have things that don't necessarily strictly appeal to the nerd type. Because anyone who is already the nerd type is already coming to you. You don't need to appeal to them any more than you already do. It's about the people who, would not otherwise come in that you're trying to market to. And I think like, unless you can operate uh, on the level of like channel fireball stars or something, you really need to be able to diversify and kind of stay one step ahead of the curve in order to survive like, you know, five years out at this point. And who knows what magic even looks like in five years. Like I think Travis said, like if, you know, arena starts becoming a thing, you know, like, Hey, I'll just go home and, you know, jam a league or something that like, why would I have to drive like 15 minutes F and M? So, I think uh, one of the other parts of this is that being um, having that sort of stronger, more diversified space that doesn't rely 100% on magic also sets you up well to take advantage of like more shifts and uh, like nerd hobbies. 
So like if you're an, if you're a store that just sells magic cards and just runs FNM and like other stuff is getting popular, you might not have the infrastructure to get that product in. You haven't built that community, like you're not there for it. But if you've got a nice robust store and like other stuff starts getting popular, like board games get really big. Like board games are already a lot bigger now than they used to be. But if that has a moment in the sun, right, where even like normal people want to play that stuff, like having that ability to kind of provide that would be great or some other card game or if they come out with some sort of tabletop thing that people are really into like being able to do that would be pretty great probably drive a lot of foot traffic really quickly yep i think that that pretty much covers it um so this week our winner of our 25 dollars in store credit is michael perry and uh if you want to win next week you can send me a or leave a question. Sorry, leave a question on the Gathering Magic page, which should go up uh, Tuesday of the week that it gets um, recorded. And uh, if you get lucky enough to get picked, then you can win uh, twenty five dollars in store credit. So Michael asked this week, uh, when you pick bulk, what is the minimum buy list you're looking to get on a card? Is it worth it to pick anything worth less than five cents? I did this pretty recently. Um, I actually just didn't feel like looking things up and I was like, Doug, what's everything what's what's everything in this set worth a dime or more? Because it's not worth my time. Right? Like ultimately it becomes what's your time worth? How much did you pay for this bulk? How much you need to get to break even? Um, or or come out ahead. Honestly, I don't pick anything less than a dime. It's not worth it. And see, I think that our buddy here, uh, Mike, is asking the wrong question. Don't ask what the minimum value is required to pick from bulk. What your better question should be, uh, when should I, when is it worth it to start looking cards up? Because if you know every single card buy list value in, say, Shadows of Renistrad to the penny, pick everything pick from three cents up right like every card you know exactly what it is you don't have to check anything you just sort them into your piles you show up at a gp with all the cards sorted and they go done right it doesn't you know the amount of time it takes you to take the card from your pile and put it in the, the three cent stack or five cent stack is nothing the time is looking at the card going how much was this one let me put the card down and type it into the website wait for it to load oh it's this one or you pull up a buy list list from that set and you go, which one is this one? Okay, it was this smart price. Okay, how much was this one? And then it's too long. Then it's taking you too long. So it should it, it, think of it less than like, how much is it worth picking the card for versus how much do I know? How, how good am I at picking the set, right? Like don't look up every single card if you don't know them. That's not worth your time. I, like Jim, recently had two 5K boxes of cards and I was like, I, there was a hundred percent of mishmash. It was every cent in magic was in those 10,000 boxes. And I knew there were no rares. I'm like, absolutely not. I just handed them over to Doug at GP Toronto. And I was like, whatever, give me money for these. I don't want to deal with that. And it worked out really well for him. And it saved me like probably five hours. And I would have made what 50, 60 bucks going through it. Forget that. Let Doug's wife do it. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not bothering. <laughs> yeah. I guess that's, that's another thing is just like, what's your time worth is, is is do you know what everything is worth if you do then you can pick it if you don't then it's it's probably not worth looking up anything um especially if it's like a mishmash if it's not even like set sorted so a lot of my bulk was set sorted so all i had to do was know what cards to look for in the set and that takes a lot less effort but if you have like you know a, you know you have a thousand count box and it's just like six years of draft decks like good luck finding anything in there that's like worth it like you can go through and be like oh yeah ghost quarters those are real things serum visions those are real things like there are definitely cards that you'll know are worth money but like are you gonna know that you need to pick like archetype of regression because it's like a dime and a bunch of uh buy lists probably not i think if you've got it sorted and that's the key here is if you've got it sorted before you dig into it, look up the buy list for that set. Remember the top 10 cards prices, right? Just kind of look at those and go, okay, I know the top 10 most valuable cards and then only pull those cards out. Don't stop to look at anything else. That's probably like a reasonable compromise. But again, it only works if it's sorted by set so you know what you're looking through. If it's not sorted by set, then just burn it. 
so from my perspective, um, mainly because I do this at a different scale than most people, um, I will pick anything that sells on tissue player down to two cents. Um, so lunatic. So I so I do not recommend that anyone anyone ever buys bulk for me because you will like literally the only cards that are left in like my common uncommon bulk are two cent or less cards that don't sell. If it's two cents and it sells, it will not be in there. We're talking things like Jade Bears. That card is three cents on Chi Chi Player. There is not a single Jade Bear in our Rebels of Ixlon bulk. Um, but anyways, that's I, the one man on one one that puts a counter on a on a Merfolk, right? On on another target Merfolk, yes. Oh, that's awful. Yes. And th those don't exist in our bulk. Um, so the reason this is important to note is that um, because I'm pricing cards constantly, I I know roughly like every card that sells for two cents or more um, in Rebels Ixlon, so it's very, very easy for me to go through and sort and just strip out bulk that way. Um, two, it's a matter of volume. I'm not taking out like you know, 10 Jade Bears and putting, like, you know, a bunch of these, you know, two-cent cards on at a time. I'm waiting. I'm stripping down bulk, waiting until we have more bulk. Most stuff just stays sorted in a box somewhere. And then eventually it gets to a point where um, I'll be putting on, like, you know, 50 to 60 copies of this card at a time. Which, granted, still does not seem like much, but they move enough volume. And it's easy enough to put on enough large quantities of these that for something like TCG Direct, it's still fine to sell for us. Um, I imagine most people don't operate on that level. Most people probably can't, you know, devote that kind of time to sort everything, uh, price everything, put everything online, deal with uh, shipping. Um, so it's probably not worth it that way. And it depends on, again, how well you know the set. Um, like Travis said, if you have to start looking up cards, it's already not worth your time. Like for each each step that is adding to the time it takes it becomes less and less worthwhile for you and i imagine most of our listeners who do operate on you know an individual scale you know like focus on things that you know you have larger margins on um both in terms of volume and in terms of value right like uh, like it it seems so trivial but like for things like when you're selling like 62 cent cards or whatever it's very, very simple to pull out in the morning, mainly because we use a scale for counting large quantities of cards. And for things like TCG Player Direct, if you actually do want to become a TCG Player Direct seller, you need to be able to sell both in terms of volume and dollar value, which unfortunately does mean that if you want to get to that point, you are selling a lot of these like two to five cent cards uh, that does compromise like uh, or consist of a relatively fair amount of what TCG Player orders are. As unfortunate as that sounds, but again, for most people, I imagine um, if if you want to be like you know reasonably efficient, just pull up like the Card Kingdom buy list. Just sit there. You can sort a set, and you can just if it if you already have things sort set, just uh, do uncommon common for non foils. Uh, Card Kingdom is probably about as good as you're going to get on buy list for those types of things. You can easily pull out. You know, towards the end of a set, you can easily pull out like probably like twenty to thirty dollars of just stuff from your like draft decks or whatever. And I th I think that's like a very reasonable compromise between you know literally pulling out every card that's two cents um, and just kind of just doing what Travis does and just shipping off bulk because you don't want to deal with it. And if you do do that, I will actually I'm not here to judge. I think that's a very reasonable thing, mainly because dealing with bulk in large quantities is a headache. Um, I have no idea how Doug does it. Um, I, de I definitely couldn't do that mainly because I don't know cards that well. I just happen to know cards in standard or specifically the most recent set because we churned through so much of it that those are the prices I know. But at this point, something like Shadows Over Innistrad, like I remember some of the better uh, commons and uncommons, but I don't remember every single one. And there's no chance I would be able to continue to pull like two cent commons out from memory at this point. You know, that brings up a good point that um, it depends on where you're going to sell it too. If you are have a GP coming up and you can take your box round and give it to vendors, then you can pick a little lower because you know you'll find buyers for it. Uh, again, if you know what you're looking for. But if you're just going to take this to your local store and get whatever they'll give you, like your local store is not going to want Jade Bears, most likely, unless they're like a, you know, a top 20 card store in the country. They're not going to be looking to buy that card, so it's not worth it to pull them. If you're sending it in by, via buy list, consider the weight of the card. 
every extra card you add makes the package a little heavier and might mean you need to buy a bigger package to send them in for buy list. So like if I'm sending into store, you know, online buy list, which I haven't done in a while, probably not even bothering with 10 cent cards, like quarters is as cheap as I would go if I'm sending it into like star city or channel fireball. Yeah, I definitely agree with all that. Um, if you're looking to just like not make a huge mistake in your bulk, like if you just want to do the most rough draft possible, to go through. Um, personally, what I end up doing most of the time is I go to Dawn Glare and I just look at what cards are listed at Uncommon, Common. Um, it pretty much sorts out everything that costs uh, below a certain amount and just doesn't list them. So like for Rivals of Ixalan, the only things that are listed at, at a Common or Uncommon are the two Lords, uh, the Merfolk Lord, the, the Vampire Lord, and the Ravenous Chupacabra. And that's pretty much all you need to pick out of that set. You're not really losing anything after that. You know, there's definitely, if you might not be so, if you only play standard and you don't play modern, you might not be in, you know, up on all of the card prices and everything in every set. So, like, if you go to Ixalan, there's, you know, one, two, three, four, five, there's six cards. There's Opt, Field of Ruin, Kite Self Rebooter, Merfolk Branchwalker, Siren Storm Tamer, and Unclaimed Territory. If you just pick those cards, you'll probably end up with like an extra $20 because. Uh, Field of Ruin and Unclaimed Territory are several dollars each. So, you know, there's definitely some amount of time that you can invest that's worth to do it, but I wouldn't go out of my way to try to nickel and dime everything that I possibly have. Okay, I think we've beaten this one to death. All right, so Mike, uh, send me a message on Facebook or Twitter, or uh, you can email me and I will get you your store credit. So next on our docket is pick of the week. So Ed, what kind of pick of the week do you have this week? Uh, I am going to kind of do something different this week. Um, I'm liking Amrakul, the promised N. It's one of those cards where it's not so old that you can't find it, but it's old enough that it's kind of starting to creep out of the realm of people still having in their binders Obviously, no one is opening Eldritch Moon at this point. Uh, the set was pretty miserable to open. Um, but with uh, Liliana's Last Hope going up, it's it might become kind of appealing. It's um, probably not worth just go on just buy a box crack. But this is the type of card that is you know will it will be popular in EDH. Uh, it's just steadily been creeping up over the like kind of the past year. Uh, um, Probably like towards the end when it was rotating out standard, you could buy as little as like four to five dollars, and now we're looking at like roughly eight dollars for the cheapest copy. Um, and it's <clears throat> it's basically just kind of like the biggest thing you can do in EDH since Emrakul's banned, uh, the Aeon's Torn, I believe. So, and it's it as like kind of a big effect, it's a, like a big splashy, like cool effect, as it were. Um, so I think this is one of those things that if you can pick it up on the cheap, it sells very, very quick. Um, if you look at TCG Player, there's only 161 different sellers that have them. And in terms of uh, if you filter out for sellers that have four or more, there's only 33. Um, which goes to show like most of these sellers, like they only have one to two. Um, and just naturally organic demand will just kind of slowly drive the price of this up. Um Again, it's a mythic. It was in a uh, summer set. It was in a small summer set. It was not largely open. It was not legal in Santa for the longest time because it did get banned. Um, so you can pick this up on cheap. Like you'll you'll definitely make a decent amount of it if you're willing to hold it for another few months. I wouldn't be surprised to see this hit like ten to twelve dollars. You know, before summer or so. Would love to see this card go up. I have so many left over from. Uh buying them in standard when they were $11 because it was going to be the only thing anyone was going to play, and then they banned it. So I got a bunch left. So it was a good pick. Oh, I sold all of mine pretty much immediately after the Pro Tour that I played them. I figured it was probably going to get banned, but I do have to probably buy another one because, like Ed said, it is one of the biggest things that you can do. So at some point in time, I'm going to find a deck where I want to play that kind of card. Um, and Ultra Shroom is like a really weird set. There's a lot of stuff that's really expensive in it now because a lot of people didn't open it. Like Liliana the Last Hope, despite being like a one or two of and Jund is $30. Uh, Collective Brutality is over 20 and that's a rare. 
Like, there's just a lot of weird stuff in that set that's expensive. Spellcaller so, and Grimflayer also see a fair amount yeah. of modern play. Yep, I, I wouldn't be surprised if the Thalia eventually gets up there. There is the Biobox promo, but you know, there's just there's just not that much of it out there. Um, so my pick this week is a little bit speculative. Um, I haven't done a lot of research, but I feel like that this is a place that a lot of people will end up going. Um, my pick this week is Food Chain. Uh, there was a new goblin spoiled in Dominaria, which is Squee. And he's a little bit different than he was last time. The last Squee, when it was in your graveyard, went back to your hand. This one you can cast from your graveyard or from, from exile. So Squee plus Food Chain is infinite mana for creatures, just like it is with Mist Hollow Griffin. The big difference is that there were decks that played Food Chain and Goblins together anyway, because if you have Goblin Recruiter, which I believe is legal in Legacy, you can stack your deck with Ringleaders and Warchiefs and basically just draw a ton of Goblins and put them all in the play. Uh, I don't know if there's a Goblin that has like an X cost that like can somehow be really busted with this. I, I didn't do a ton of research, but um, if, for example, Deathrite Shaman gets banned, which a lot of people are asking for, Goblins can make a big resurgence legacy. A lot of the Goblin cards are getting reprinted in this set itself. And, you know, Siege Gang Commander and uh, Goblin Warchief are another two cards that could be played in that deck. Food Chain's like the only thing that's odd man out, right? It's a Mercadian Masks block rare. They basically don't exist, and pretty much every time someone decides that it's a deck, like, anytime a streamer plays a deck with Food Chain in it, people don't know that it's a card. They're like, oh man, this is so sweet, and they go out and buy them. So... If Saffron Olive ever decides to play a food chain deck, they're just going to disappear off the shelves. It's way too expensive for him, isn't it? No, no. He plays bad decks that cost a lot of money also. Uh, okay. Uh, I'm going to go with... Uh, I know people want like specs based on Dominaria because we got all sorts of information there and we haven't really come through it. Uh, I don't have anything that you haven't already heard of yet. Kind of got to see where things go, see what shakes out. I want to hear from people who know what they're talking about in terms of like what's good and what works. Um, I do think some of those sagas might be interesting. Like I earlier, I posted that the Phyrexian saga that was in today's announcement from Forsyth looked like it was probably bad. And then somebody pointed out that you can play it on turn four and then on turn five it Wraths and then you can immediately slam a five drop because your mana is still up, which is kind of cool. Um, so those might be, I expect those to be the sagas to be the most misunderstood cards in Dominaria. So possibly, um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see one of those turn into the walking ballista of Dominaria. But in any case, uh, I'm going to, this week I'm going to talk about the, uh, commander's arsenal version of chaos warp. They're like nine bucks. Maybe it's the only foil printing. Uh, it's been printed like six times. It's still the only one. Uh, it's the second most popular red card in EDH. And I think you're seeing red get more popular in EDH as well. They're printing more and more decent red commanders who do like things that you want to do and aren't just like a legendary goblin who attacks for two, uh, which is what red has been in commander for so long. So I think we're seeing more reasons to play red in commander. It's the second most played card in the format. You can buy the only foil on the market for eight or $9. There aren't that many out there. It's got to be 20 bucks, right? Like in a month, two months. I mean, I know, I feel like we've talked about this before. Somebody talked about this before. So it's kind of taking its time, but it's going to get there. Yeah. I mean, we've already had a reprint set this year. There could be another master set, but like, what's the chances that that ever gets into a master set, right? Like Chaos Warp is not the kind of card that like people are going to be excited to open at rare. So foil copies just won't exist. They'll just never reprint them. It'll come. It'll be in a reprint set, but you got time, you know, where it's not happening in the next month or two. Right, that's what I'm saying. Like people are not clamoring to get foil copies of Chaos Warp, so I think that's a pretty that's a pretty good idea. Well, all right. So let's uh, let's wrap it up um, and do what we always do, which is let everyone know where to find us. So my name is Jim Casal. You can find me on Twitter at phrst underscore. Uh, you can find me on Gathering Magic every other week. Um, and you can sometimes find me in the OK state of Florida, where I live. Huh? The OK state is Oklahoma. You are correct. 
Ed, where can people find you? Uh, before I do that, I just want to give a quick shout out to uh, Manuel and Shane. They found me at the GP in Madrid this past weekend, came up. Uh, <laughs> what did no, they say to you? <laughs> what did they say to you, Ed? What did they say to you? I, I can't remember. Um, I think I remember. I remember. <laughs> All right. So someone else tell the story because really everyone else finds it way funnier than I do uh, for obvious reasons. Have there's, I not, there's not even a story. You're just like, these guys came up to me at the event at the GP and said, Hey, I know you from cartel aristocrats and you're like, cool. And then they're like, you're a lot shorter than we thought you were. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's because Jeremy has no sense of height and, and no one realizes that he's trolling when he says that a lot of us are the same height and we're not. They're not even close. Despite the fact that, you know, we have that picture of all of us standing in a row from Vegas last year, but Jeremy guess, loves that picture. He posts it all the time. Yeah. So shout out to you guys. Thank you for coming up, finding me. It was cool to chat to you guys about just random questions. Um, you guys can find me on Twitter at Edwin13. I will not be in Phoenix this weekend. I'll actually be at Pokemon Regionals and then in Charlotte, and then I'll be flying straight to Japan. Still trying to find a listener in Japan who listens to Cartel Aristocrats, but that one is a bit more difficult. But it, uh, if you are in Japan and you do listen to me somehow, I'd love to meet you in person just so I can check off my bucket list. Well, it'll be difficult since we don't speak Japanese. I'm, sure, right, sure. I, I'm sure there's like a random English speaker that listens to me. I mean, who knows? I've definitely That's... met people, people in Japan that actually like expats, military brats or whatever. So mm-hmm. they do exist. All right. Travis, where can everyone find you? I am Travis Allen. I am on Twitter at WizardBumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. I write every Monday at MTG Price for the Watchtower series, and I also do the podcast MTG Fast Finance. Where? What happens if you're looking for magic? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> we also run Scry.Land. We've, I've been uh, a little a little negligent in getting that updated. I'm not sure how up-to-date it is at the moment, but it is a good website for tracking magic events uh, when we do update it. <laughs> well, you should get on that. Well, I don't know. I don't know. We, I wasn't sure. It didn't feel like we necessarily had enough people to like that really got me driving to take care of it. All right. Enough people yell at me on Twitter, we will. Well, I, I know a lot of people love to yell at you because I can say really dumb things like, what time are you listening to this podcast at? And people just post like infinite responses. So tell, oh, tell Travis you like his website so that he updates it. Sure. All right, well, that's all we have this week for you guys. Um, As always, you can find us on Gathering Magic and on YouTube, and we'll talk to you next week.